we come now to consider man's creation, and we would expect that the great, wonderful God that we've been studying would be so conscious of abundant blessings that the Godhead would want to create moral beings who could enter into the great life that God is conscious of without any ending of blessing and happiness. It must have been a great pleasure to God to be self-conscious as to how much little creature man would have to discover and that he would never run out of happy observations and relationships. We have titled this section, you observe, Happiness and Blessedness, that man was created to enjoy. Uh, These words are not quite the same as we mentioned in the first paragraph. Happiness is a good term. It is a state of well-being, a pleasurable state of satisfaction. But nevertheless, there is a higher concept that appears in the word blessedness. This seems to be a concept of happiness that is God-centered more in concentration with a warm, benevolent appreciation of the love and blessings of God. Jesus talked about the fellowship we had with the Father before the world was. We've been meditating upon the great, wonderful being of God. So this beautiful fellowship... Uh, would be a great desire on the part of God that creatures could experience this lovely fellowship that's been going on. So Jesus said, Glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, which the glory which I ever had with thee before the world was. And so God uh, ventured forth upon this uh, great risk. It was a risk. God had had some agonizing disappointments with angelic beings and there was ever endeavor made to bring about a new relationship of moral beings who would be happy and be concentrating upon the great heart of God. Uh, We see the wonderful statement how we've been created in the image and likeness of God. These are two wonderful words which are very close together, as we observe. Uh, We really have to define one in terms of the other. However, there is a slight difference of concept. We mentioned here that image comes from the idea of a shadow. So here is a projection of a light, and here is an object that's being projected, and here is a shadow. So we are said to be a little projection of the great being of God. Of course, God is talking about his spiritual essence. And then the other word, likeness, uh, seems to come from the idea of a mold of some sort. You'd have an object you want to reproduce, you have a sand mold and form the area in the mold and pour it, and you have a duplication. And so God wanted us to be a little mold of his great, wonderful being. Aren't these tremendous words to think about? And how God plans intimacy, obviously, uh, is creating us like this uh, to uh, continually experience his great love and bounty. And this, of course, would tell us right away that if mankind rebels against God, 
he has broken the circuit of God's plans. And he's cut himself off from any possibility of happiness and blessedness. These indeed are precious things to think about, aren't they? We give you a chart in this section on what we call the nature of personality. We have conversed upon this already. And so we understand our capacities in terms of what we can do, do we not? So we have mentioned already our intellectual functions. We have the ability to reason and to think out propositions, to, to have a process of thought and come to conclusions. We have this remarkable ability of imagination, which we can picture before our minds things that don't actually exist before the physical. And this is an unthinkable ability that God has given us. We have been given a God consciousness. This would be what we would expect, created in the image of God. We have an understanding, in other words, in our inner being of what spiritual existence would be like. We can't see it, as we said. We can't define it fully, but we have a consciousness of a spiritual existence. So you never have to teach anybody to pray when they get in terrible trouble. This is a spontaneous reaction that there is a spiritual existence that is above. In other words, people are acting spontaneously then in their inner reactions because God has put within our constitution this comprehension. And this must relate too to the imagination as we imagine what spiritual existence is like. And we have a consciousness then of more than we can define. And we have a self-consciousness too. And we weren't intend to prove that we exist. We have a self-consciousness that we do exist. And everybody practices this, no matter what their philosophies may be. They all are conscious of self-values and, and uh, cultivating their own needs and so on. So we have a self-consciousness. And we have a conscience. This is a remarkable thing. Uh, it is a problem whether this is a separate thing in our personalities or not. I don't think it's a separate thing as I see it to be a function of the mind. And so our minds are always analyzing what we're doing. And they're making a comparison between what we know and what we do. So conscience is a function uh, comparing our knowledge of what our obligation is and the performance of our lives according to our obligation as perceived. And uh, if we are fulfilling our obligation, then conscience is a blessing like God intended it to be. And uh, Paul talks about the testimony of his conscience, does he not? Then we've been given a memory to ever increase in our uh, experiences. And uh, God didn't want us to start over again every day. So he gave us something to build upon, a registry in our personality, in our memory. Uh, various scientific studies are trying to put all of these capacities in terms of the physical uh, existences of the brain. And uh, indeed, we know better than this spiritually, we know that, that we are personalities of a mysterious nature that use our physical brain capacity. But we are back of these physical things. And we can have some interesting experiences with people. 
who have had deficiency of the physical brain capacity. And yet there seems to be a personality that's trying to come through this, these inabilities that have been developed. And at times, the personality does come through. And then the physical deficiency seems to hide the personality. In other words, we experience a personality of existence beyond the mere physical entities that we are using within our personality. Truly, God has created us wonderful beings, hasn't he? But he didn't want us to have monotony in our life, did he? So he gave us experiences, reactions of what we are occupied with. And it's a fundamental thing to realize that we cannot control our emotions directly. We have emotion, we have experiences over everything we think about, more or less, according to our various susceptibilities at a given time. But we can never have experiences directly. So this is a very valuable lesson to learn. And we shouldn't whip ourselves too severely when we are very, very exhausted and, 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 and uh, feel too terrified if we can't have emotion uh, toward God and toward virtue like we would like to have it. And uh, Jesus told his dear ones sometimes, come apart and rest a while. And so our contemplation, our mental understanding is the basis of experience. My, what a valuable, valuable lesson. We have all various people trying to have all kinds of spiritual experiences as some direct entity of some kind. And of course, this will just be an imitation. It won't be the reality. As we talked about in our last lecture, it is the Holy Spirit who enlightens our minds as to the reality of God in the first place. And as we contemplate and worship the, the existence and being of God, here is where our experience results from our contemplation. Now, if we want to grapple with some great issues, this is one great issue. We've all kinds of people trying to have various climactic experiences of one sort or another without involving themselves in a process of comprehension and understanding and objective knowledge. And so they resort to all kinds of mechanical things to try to generate experience. And this will be very temporary. And you never know when you can get it back. I've had various meetings with people who think they had remarkable experiences years ago. They don't know how to get them back. It was something very mystical. Experience is not supposed to be mystical. It's supposed to be a reality as a result of contemplation of truth. And of course, the Holy Spirit takes the things of God, makes them real, as Jesus said he would do. How precious to evaluate this. Praise the Lord for that concept. It is worth a fortune. Jesus said the truth shall set you free. And we learn the truth through the word of God. As made living and real by the Holy Spirit. 
So I never practice trying to get people to have emotion directly. If we can only see the truth of God in prayer and enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, so people forget their emotion and suddenly get concentrated on the things of God, then all of a sudden they find an explosion in their emotion. Because uh, these are reactions to what the mind is thinking about. And uh, we can never experience any emotion except the mind interprets it. The various contacts and experiences of our body are merely vehicles by which the mind interprets what's going on. And so it is the mind that evaluates everything that's taking place. And God didn't want us to have a monotonous life. He wanted us to have unending appreciations of his lovely being. How do you calculate love, for example, as an experience of worship? Jesus said the Father seeketh such to worship him. What is worship? A satisfaction, a contemplation, an appreciation, a settlement on the values of life, and, and a great adoration of the being of God for whom he is and, and for all the blessings he's given to us. In other words, here comes a lovely relaxation. We might interject this at a moment. We have in Romans 14, 17, for example, a beautiful summary of what the Christian life is to be like. And so Paul here summarizes. He's talking about details. He says, the life is not externals, but what is it? He said, it is righteousness, it is peace, it is joy in the Holy Spirit. A lot of people are trying to seek joy directly, and of course they won't find it. Because you can't have joy without peace. This is the surface from which joy comes. You can't have peace without righteousness. This is an adjustment to God, so God can be with us. And this all is in the Holy Spirit in this wonderful age. And so God had designed man to have these unending discoveries, hadn't he? These lovely, delicate reactions. We wouldn't enjoy our thinking processes if we didn't have experience with them. I thought to myself dozens of times in our engineering department as we had all these, these observations with the computer, our company had a whole building which it rented millions of dollars every year. Very, very elaborate computer equipment. And here it was very typical uh, to work out these programs. And remember, of course, the computer is never going to discover anything. It's simply going to do what you tell it to do. And so you program into the computer what you want to do. And, of course, these programs may be worth $25,000 for a little pack of cards. Because this is a manipulation of the mechanism. And so it was very typical to see engineers bringing their data to the computer department. And then very quickly, just a matter of a few seconds, we have a great big mass of material coming back. And then carrying all this back, all digested, all of this sort of an amazing, interesting category. But one thing the computer never does is show any reactions to what it's doing. It accepts what you give it. Gives out what you ask for, with no experiences involved of any kind. 
I thought to myself many times, wouldn't it be monotonous if we were like computers? If we had no appreciation of what we're doing and thinking about. God didn't want this, did He? He wanted an evaluation. He wanted an experience over what we're doing. And so He created us in His own image. And isn't it moving? If we're in the image of God and we have experiences and capacity, what do you think about the experiences and capacities of God? And then why do you think about the value of living for God to contribute to God's happiness? We've referred to this before. And this is a lovely motivation I like to come to, as I mentioned in section 11. The opportunity to contribute to the happiness of God. As God contemplates our honesty before Him and our desire to further His cause, and He observes the situation and then has His emotion like Jesus said, there's joy in heaven over one person that opens the mind and is willing to rethink and see what is right and what is true. So it's a tremendous thing to have experiences and emotions. We shouldn't interdict this cloud here, but a great cloud is coming, of course. If we take our wonderful capacities to experience, and if we begin to abuse them in wrong experiences, there comes a devastation into our lives, doesn't it? But God didn't plan these devastations. God planned the beautiful, the lovely, the receptive, the appreciative. In other words, because of experience and emotion, we are interested in continuing our thought process. This is like a thermometer, like a barometer of our thought. Then God wanted us to have the pleasure of self-direction. And so he gave us, in his own image, this ability of will. We have said a couple of times already, we need to reinforce the idea because of our great deficiency of background. The concept we have in the scripture of the will is a self-responsible, originating faculty, whereby we create what we're going to do. We create our actions out of nothing. There is nothing that causes us to do what we're doing except ourselves. We're under all kinds of influences, but the scripture finalizes it under the decisions of the will. Jesus said, ye will not come unto me that you might have life, and that settles it. No matter how much he did, they did not choose to come. Jesus said, I wanted to gather you into my heart, but you didn't want to. He said, if anyone will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine or the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. So the scripture does not do what evolutionary psychologists have spent about a century trying to do. Putting man into the, test, into the laboratory and trying to decide and prove why he chooses what he does. You simply cannot put free will into the laboratory. Because free will is a freedom of choice which you cannot predict. You can influence but not cause. This is Serena Day, of course. All of this is totally rejected by our so-called intelligentsia of the world. Here we have Darwin about 1860 introducing his ideas. And man is supposed to be an evolution. Creatures live by instincts. 
Man, of course, must also live by instinct. And the devastation is this. Creatures were designed to live by instinct. Man was designed to regulate his instincts and live by intelligence. And if man abandons his intelligence and lives by instinct, devastation of an unthinkable quantity results. But so-called intelligentsia, rejecting the uniqueness of man, of course, are bound by their own conclusions. God does not go beyond the will. We have so many dozens of passages throughout the Bible to this effect. We said there's one thing God can't do. He cannot make us choose to love Him. Because this is our own decision. And God has made us so wonderful. And the greatest of pleasure comes when we perceive that God has quickened our wills from the devastation we made because every time we choose wrong, we form a habit of wrongness. And it's easier to keep on increasing our wrongness than it is to turn back. And God in His wonderful work among us wants to resurrect the will into His power of authority that God wanted it to have. So man is truly wonderful, is he not? But this kind of thinking is intolerable to those who want to live in a low form of life. As we said, you can't shoot high and live low. And so since most moral beings want to live low, in the low forms of selfishness of one sort or another, whatever may be the options, they have refused to accept the high concept of personality that God establishes. God, in our case, did a remarkable adventure. He created us with a body and incorporated our personality into a body with very intimate relationships, didn't he? He intended this to be a beautiful thing, an enjoyable thing. We could appreciate his physical work on every hand. So we go on in this little chart to say how we operate. And we are suggesting for your thinking, rather than consider ourselves as parts which can function independently, it seems more simple to conceive of ourselves as complete units which operate as a whole. We mentioned this little bit under the messenger. And so everything we do has to begin with the will. The will is really we ourselves. And we can't do a thing without the mind. So if we have a certain emotion we want to gratify, there's only one way to do it. And that is to direct the mind, but the will to direct the mind to think upon what the emotions are desiring to experience. And so the will has to direct the mind. And, and the occupation of the mind brings about emotional reactions. This tells us something important, doesn't it? The Holy Spirit does not work in the emotions. 
The Holy Spirit works in the mind. If we keep our minds where they belong, our emotions will take care of themselves. My, what a lesson to learn. Various people are praying, God, take this away from me. God's not going to do it. He wants to help us to have a constructive, wholesome, benevolent attitude of mind. And God is helping us to have a beautiful thought process, overcome evil with good. And so we see the intimate functioning of the personality. Truly wonderful, isn't it? Then as we said, conscience seems to be the continuous activity of the mind evaluating things. And is more or less according to our enlightenment. In other words, conscience is not final. It compares to what we know. It always seems to be operative. It seems like no one is able to get entirely away from conscience. And sometimes people fight it for 50 years and have to go back and admit that conscience slew them. And so conscience is a comparative thing. And then this is all registered in the memory. Someone had said it's just like a soundtrack recording of everything we think about, everything we do is recorded in the memory. Now we learn various instinctive habits we mentioned. We had certain experiences. We learned not to do things. And as we learn these things, uh, we don't rethink them. And so our lives are a whole composite of habits. We learn to put our coat on the same way, one way. We don't think so until we get a difficulty. And so we form all kinds of habits, which we do spontaneously. So here seems to be the beautiful concept that God had in mind. Now uh, we have the situation as to how we are to classify ourselves. And uh, these seem to be the main words that uh, help us to look to this classification. So as we try to analyze ourselves a little more thoroughly, this particular list is not as such as an outline in your notes. The ideas are all there. The common words we all recognize to be spirit, soul, heart, mind, and body. And we have two ideas of classification, as you realize. We have the idea of a trichotomy, that man is spirit, soul, and body. Uh, this seems to go back to the philosophers. We had Plato uh, distinguishing between body and soul. And his successor Aristotle seemed to have enlarged and divided the soul concept into the function of life, let's say, the animal function, the function of the thought needful to conduct life then he conceived that there was a higher function of the mind in the function of pure reason pure concept of course they didn't develop the idea of a spiritual relation to God but but they they're trying to uh, distinguish in the thinking capacity and so on and this was something like 360 BC in that area when Aristotle is advancing 
the concept of a higher ability, a higher function of the mind in the area of what he called pure reason. And this was the ultimate of the philosophers, their so-called area of pure reason. Of course, this so-called pure reason of theirs was tainted because of their own lack of perception as to the true reality of God's creation and the admission of God's presence. Then it seems like origin around 250 uh, concentrates on the trichotomy idea. And he seems to take Aristotle's idea of the, of the higher intellectual function and attach this to the word spirit. And so he seems to advocate uh, with a lot of mysteries with it, body, soul, and spirit. And so some of the other succeeding leaders, Augustine, for example, uh, thought that man lost his spiritual function in the fall, and now man couldn't think or understand about God. And so we have various ideas, and, and uh, in the evangelical circles, and much writing we can find, of course, on the idea of trichotomy. And this was the principle I was taught in my theological training. We will get into this a little further as we consider the fall of man and see what happened there. But as a, well, we should read the key passage on trichotomy, which you understand to be 1 Thessalonians 5.23. This is an admonition of prayer that Paul has in closing this epistle. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we can't exactly reinforce this, but the word your is suggestive, isn't it? Your spirit and soul and body. And your may refer to our basic personality, which is really the will. Because it is one defect of the trichotomy view, it does not have a place for the word heart, which is just as important in describing personality as spirit and soul. And this, then, is the great defect of trichotomy. It seems much simpler to many, and it's hard to know where the majority opinion would be, that man is a dichotomy. And this is the view I have come to as I've gone through all the different passages using the main words, spirit, soul, mind, and heart. It seems much simpler to consider ourselves as a dichotomy. Our essential personality which cannot be seen, which is in the image of God, a total personality which is indivisible and you can't lose any part of your personality and still be a person. And many theological writers think you have actually lost a part of your personality in the fall. Or our first parents did and we were born without it. I can't conceive how we can lose any part of our personality because we're in the image of God as a functioning unit. And so we have some many interesting passages along this line. 2 Corinthians 4.16 talks about the outer man and the inner man. Paul says, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, 
Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Outer man, inner man. Our total personality in the image of God, in our case, combined with the body. Then you go into the fifth chapter of 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about his personality as a unit. We have a desire to depart be with Christ. We leave the body, giving the idea of a total personality that can function without the body, and so on. Then we have in Hebrews 4.12 a very important passage in this matter. Uh, it is often used by the trichotomist. But really it is a stronger passage for dichotomy because it mentions heart as the source of conduct and activity. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow. It's talking about a deep penetration of the, whole, of the Word of God, isn't it? And able to judge the thoughts and intentions of a heart. So we see that heart is the important value and value of character and conduct. Now, I don't think we have a spiritual heart anywhere. I think this is a figure that God is trying to use. Certainly the center of our body is the heart. As it functions and uh, develops the blood circulation with all that's needed and resulting from this. And so the heart, we would say, is the center of our body. I think God uses the word heart in Scripture, trying to show us there's a center of our personality. Now, you can't find this. You can't find your personal heart, can you? This is a part of us. This is our essence. We know we have life. We can't define it. We have to experience it. So there's a center of our personality, which is the center of decision. And so this passage would seem to favor the dichotomy view. When we get to put these words together, we find that spirit and mind are associated. And a remarkable simple passage appears in Ephesians 4.23. Be renewed, be continually renewed in the spirit of your mind. Spirit of your mind. And we have other passages, many as you realize, which talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in our minds. We are to be quickened in our mind. We have that great passage, Romans 12, 2, do we not? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind. That you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so it seems much simpler to conceive of ourselves as a complete unit rather than trying to break down our action. And this is very deceptive because people imagine that they, they have a bad part and a good part. And when we come to consider the consequence of the fall, uh, as you have no doubt studied, Augustine originated the idea of causation. And that we're born with a cause to sin. Here's a beautiful baby. This baby has something in its existence that it can't obey God, according to Augustine. It's got a causation to sin. And people sin because they're caused to sin. 
And so he conceives that you got a bad part by birth. Then the new birth is supposed to be a good part. And so you're supposed to have a bad part and a good part as Christians. These are entities according to the concept. And you can see the involvement here in, in trying to distinguish between the good part and the bad part. And indeed, you get into some very complicated situations. And sometimes you hear this. When we do something wrong, oh, that wasn't me that did this. This was my old man that did this. You're not to think that I'm like this. And that is a bad part of me that did this. And look at the dreadful delusions that result. People suppose that they're born of the Spirit and have an entity. And they begin to think that, that, that sin has to do with the body. And although they don't love God here, yet because they think sin has to do with the body, they think when they die, they'll go to be with the Lord, and suddenly they'll love God. So you can see the utter complication and delusions that come with the idea of a segmented or divided personality, a good part and a bad part. It seems so much simpler to consider ourselves as a personality, as a unit, having the abilities to do things. And so we come back to what we mentioned on your first page there again. And we are suggesting, rather than thinking of the different parts of our personality, we think of the word ability, function, things we're able to do in our experience. And so we, we, we associate spirit and mind together. And this is the ability of intellect, we say. And this is certainly the area that we contemplate God in our imagination, in our intelligence. And the Holy Spirit works and enlightens our minds, does he not? So we have an intellectual or a spiritual function, a mind function. Then we have a soulish function. And the word soul usually has to do with the emotions or the experiences. I should mention that here is one reason opposing the idea of a trichotomy division to help the whole rigidly. Because you have these different words that we talked about here used somewhat interchangeably. And this would seem to oppose the idea of a hard and fast division. Generally, spirit is associated with the higher ability to contemplate God. Associated with the mind. Generally, soul is always associated with the emotion or the ability to experience. We have our five senses, do we not? The ability to experience. And heart is generally associated with the will, the decisive, authoritative part of our personality. Here is the creator of action. Uh, we have uh, Exodus 36.2, for example. Moses has the prescriptions of the tabernacle. And he's trying to find out those whose heart stir them up to come to the work. In other words, the heart, the, the decision of will is the mysterious difference between personalities. One will discipline the will to do things, another will slumber. This is our personality. This is basically we. What are we willing to do? 
And so we see that the decision of will is the reason for every success, both in the necessary things of life and in the spiritual sphere too. So heart is the mysterious entity that makes a difference between personalities. One will discipline and do things. Another will not to that extent. And so the scriptures represent the secret of energy to be in our hearts, our own decisions, what we decide to do. And uh, we see we have to awaken in our hearts. Sin is said to be in the heart. Uh, Jesus said that the body can't be blamed for anything. It is the heart that precedes the difficulties. Out of the heart proceed all these evil things. As he indicated in Mark 7, 21 to 3. There's the heart, the essence of our life. The, the mysterious activity of what we're going to do. Then the, Paul in Romans 10, 9 and 10. You believe with your heart. And we have a whole mass of scripture later in the manual as you realize that God looks at the heart. He looks at the disposition of heart. So rather than think of different parts, it seems uh, more simple to think of abilities. Like on the top of your page two, we kind of sum this up. We say man is not to be thought of as a divisible being with distinct parts which can function independently, but rather as an integrated whole personality having first an intellectual function or mind or a spiritual function enabling man to be God conscious as well as self conscious. Then we have a soulish function rather than look for parts. Let's talk about abilities. We have a soulish function that can give us experiences, reactions and emotions. So mere facts are not monotonous. If we didn't have any reaction to what we're doing, life would have been meaningless, wouldn't it? And so God didn't want this, so he gives us this. And isn't it wonderful that we are in the image of God? We've got a right to analyze ourselves and have a greater understanding of God, don't we? And so since we have this ability, just think of God's great emotion as he contemplates the different observations he has before him. Then we have a heart function. Or the mysterious endowment of self-determination. And in our case, it's all joined to a bodily activity. Not in God's case, as we say. And so it seems much simpler to uh, conceive of ourselves as a complete unit in its functioning, in its ability. Now we have said a good deal about the next proposition on your page two. We say the real essence of man's life is to consist in a full expression of his personality in all the relationships that God has given us. And uh, we have two directions of this relationship. We have the vertical direction, whereby we are able, because of our equipment, uh, to experience God. It's just like you have the radio broadcasting situation. Be no good having a broadcasting unit if there was no receivers. No good having receivers, there was no broadcast. So when God created us in this image, he created us to be on his wavelength, to be able to experience consciousness. Now you can't store up life, can you? You have to experience life. No one knows what it is. You know when you have it, you know when you don't. But life is an experience. It's a flow of some kind. 
a mysterious thing that no one can understand. And so our relation to God has got to be an experience. You never have a part of the life of God, do you? My, that's an important sentence. Because many think the new birth is some kind of a slice of life. When the new birth is really an admittance back into God whereby He gives us to experience Himself. In other words, He turns on His broadcast to us personally when we are willing to receive it in a respectable way. And so you cannot store up life, can you? Oh, friends, rise to think on these things. This will be a great dynamic outlet of blessing in our lives as we, as we rise to understand ourselves and understand God and all the beautiful things He wants to do for us. So there was the vertical, and this was to be absolutely intimate. That Paul at Athens talks about God not far from every one of us, wanting to contact every one of us. In Him we live and move and have our being, he said. And so God designed us to be living in vertical relationship, didn't He? Then there was to be the horizontal relationship. Well, before we leave this, we should mention what we have already commented upon, that we think that God alone has access into our innermost personality. And we have an Old Testament passage in Second Chronicles 6.30, which we mention here. And uh, this seems to be uh, a, a statement of God's intimacy in His relationship to us. Here is Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple. He's talking about the possibility of Israel sinning here and then uh, repenting and coming back. And then he says, Then hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive and render to each according to, all his, to, according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest, for thou alone dost know the hearts of the sons of men. And so it seems like also from Jesus, he knew what was in man. And so it appears that only God has this total access into our personalities, up and down and back and forth. In total penetration, he can see the decisions of our will, the purpose of our life. He doesn't need to ask us. He doesn't wait for our actions. He can look down and see which direction our will is turned at the moment and evaluate our whole character. And this would tell us that the only way we can have a meaningful life is to have a vertical, intelligent relationship to our creator and our author. And it should also tell us that no matter what we do in life, no matter what we do in life, there can never be satisfaction except we have the author of our being living in our personality and giving us the reality of experiences that he designed us to have. My, what a lesson that is to learn. People have spent their long lives, haven't they? Reaching on after this, they reach out and it breaks like a bubble. Let's get a hold of something else. And that broke too. Well, here's the thing. Reach out for that. And that broke. And so you have frustration throughout life, don't you? Because people have thought that things and, and se separated experiences would bring life. My, what a lesson. God has created us to relate ourselves to Him. And it is only he that can give us the, the concept of life in our personality. It is his blessing. He has access. Obviously, if we don't allow him to access, we've got a big vacuum. 
What can we say is the trouble of humanity? They're running around with a vacuum that they can't fill. In other words, they're so wonderful they're disturbed. God has made us too wonderful to live sinful, hasn't he? He's just given us all this wonderful equipment. And if we're not using it, there can't be any satisfaction. My, what a lesson. How wonderful when we learn this in early life. And can build upon a real foundation. Shouldn't we be thankful and glad? We can just remark a few things here. We talked about how Jesus wants to come in and sup with us. And we with him. But God wanted us to enjoy each other, didn't he? So he gave us a social or a horizontal relationship. Which was to be very meaningful. However, this is a relationship through the five senses, isn't it? So we never do know each other thoroughly. We know manifestations only. However, manifestations are rather complete. But still it's not the kind of knowledge God has. So all of our human knowledge is based upon manifestations of personality. We never can be exposed to each other's personality directly. We're dependent upon manifestations. This would tell us what? It would tell us that all human relationships must be secondary. My, what a lesson. And if we make any human relation a major, it will never realize what God had planned us to have. And look at this. It is only the life of God in us that keeps us in a condition to be known. And if we don't live directly with God, we'll have secrets that we don't want people to discover. And as soon as we have secrets, this limits friendship. Because friendship is exposure. Bless the Lord. So we live with God. There's a purifying life that comes from God, isn't there? And Paul says, as we said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And when we have the purifying life of God, then we can be willing for each other to analyze us. Because we're seeking to live in all sincerity before God and man. And so the vertical is the basis of the horizontal. Oh, God wants to give us lovely seekers, doesn't he? We have a few instances of the friendships and blessings of our life. Incidentally, you have the record in Genesis 2 we, tell, we mention. Here Adam is admiring the animals, giving them names, admiring God's creation. But there's no one who can be on his level of fellowship. So man is said to be alone before Eve's creation. We have companionship is natural. 
David and Jonathan have a precious companionship, didn't they? Paul and Timothy had such a lovely companionship. It seems to have been basically a companionship of tears, doesn't it? Paul says, I've got so much to do for Jesus, I've got to be concerned. He writes to Timothy, doesn't he, as we give you a passage there. Timothy, I want to come and see you. What I want to see when I see you, I want to see some of those tears of love for Jesus come down your face. And when I see your tears of love for Jesus, then I'm going to turn around to that wall, so to speak, and glorify and shout the praise of God. Because then I know, Timothy, your heart for Jesus like I do. Jesus said, it's wonderful to be happy, but let's try to be useful. Take up my cross with me every day, he said, and bear my burdens. And his burdens must be the salvation of the lost, mustn't they? And so here's the beauty of friendship based on the vertical. How lovely to think of what God wanted to do for us. We don't think of Paul needing companionship, do we? But he says in Romans 15, 32, he wanted to be refreshed by friendship. We have the beautiful concept of marriage. First Peter 3, 7, heirs together of the grace of life. This, of course, is the most intimate relationship of life. And thus there must be for any successful marriage the supremacy of Jesus. Anything short of this will lack purity. For marriage there must be purity. As soon as one of the partners has any emotional reaction for anyone else, marriage is damaged. So the concept of God's beauty was purity. Purity only takes place in the vertical relationship with Jesus. So these are the lovely things God had planned, are they not? He wanted us to enjoy the physical too. And so he created so many lovely things for us to worship him over, to study and to observe intricacies of all kinds, uniformities, mysteries. In other words, God has surrounded us with so many, many things to evaluate His greatness. He wants us to be busy, constructively. Man has the idea that happiness is idleness. And so people toil in their lives, waiting for the time when they say they can do nothing. And so they torment themselves through life, looking forward to the time when they could do nothing. And they find out that this nothing wasn't what they thought it would be. I'm on the retirement list of our company. Every Christmas we get an address list. I see some missing names along the line. And I remember some who said they were going to do nothing. But try to cultivate themselves. Of course, God didn't design us to do nothing. He designed us to be constructive to be productive in our personality, to use ourselves constructively and beneficially to him, of course, and to others. And so he created things to be taken care of in this beautiful world, not the toil it came to be, of course. That was a result of sin. And so here we have the beautiful picture of God's plan, don't we? And we should just delight in God's love, his expectation. Here then was our summary sketch 
of what we've been talking about? God wanted to create mankind to receive the body of his love, communication. So we have the large arrow of communication. God has such a consciousness of what he has to give, doesn't he? And this must have been a great pleasure to God to know that man would never run out of happy new discoveries. And so man was to be the recipient of unthinkable bounties. And we know that after the fall, the record comes out that God came to Adam and Eve and wanted to bless them, but now they're ashamed. And this would indicate that God had plans of special times of enlightenment and blessing and wanted mankind to be receptive to his love and experiences. And so here's God's basic idea of creation, that he might have an outlet for his great consciousness of love and beauty, intelligence, all the lovely things we see to exist. And man was to be the recipient without any end of these blessings from God. Of course, you've got to have two wires to have a light, let's see. When you turn the switch over there, you break one of the lines and the light goes out. If God is going to flow his life through us, we have to return the circuit of respect and a right attitude toward God of worship and truth. And so here was God's concept of the flow of life. You can't store it up. It has to flow. And if it's going to flow, there has to be a right attitude. And as we said, the, the life of the vertical was to keep us in a condition of, of uh, rightness and life with God that we are able to have relationship with each other without secrets because secret destroys friendship, doesn't it? And then God wanted us to have a happy, blessed time with each other in our human relationships. And of course, every single blessing in our relationship has to be according to God's will and plan. And so here was the beautiful concept of communication and fellowship. We call this the triangle of fellowship and blessing, which God had so diligently planned and done so much to bring about. These then were God's lovely plans. How precious to worship and see God's great love in this area. Now there are principles of life, which we will summarize in our next subhead here, having to do with the Ten Commandments and so on. And there is a principle of life apart from which this happiness cannot be. So here is a finality of relationship. God can never have any plan of salvation that does not restore this relationship. I have been exposed to all kinds of plans of salvation called grace whereby they think God can restore something without our submissiveness. And this can never be, there can never be any happiness except a return to intelligence, can there? And so the gospel must aim to bring us back into right attitude to God as basically and then to each other as a result.